All right, good evening, everyone. My name is Paul Fahrenheit, and thank you very much for coming to the pilot episode of the New World Signals podcast, a podcast centered entirely around Americana and the New American mythos. I'm currently sitting here on my estate in Orange County, Virginia, looking over the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. I can see my cotton fields in between them, and it's it's really just it's a wonderful, wonderful time of evening. Summer is coming, and I really can feel it. I've got a nice bowl of mint juleps next to me, and uh, I am joined by an absolutely wonderful and amazing guest. He is a former lawyer. He is a published author with Imperium Press. He is an infamous online poster, uh, also an international playboy known in all four corners of the earth by heads of state and State Department officials alike. He is a champion of revisionist history, and he has appeared on several shows, including Bronze Age Perverts Caribbean Rhythms several times, The Pete Quinones Show, Academic Agent, and a handful, more than a handful of several other shows. And he has so kindly agreed to drop into my humble little broadcast to help launch it on its maiden voyage. I would like to introduce, welcome, and thank my mentor, Thomas777, for appearing on the New World Signals podcast. How are you doing, Thomas? I'm doing very well. That's quite an endorsement and introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing. It's, uh, I'm not quite... I'm not situated on quite a lovely yeah. vista as you are, but I'm here in Chicago as I always am. And I'm kind of disappointed. They were saying there was going to be this catastrophic storm and it never came. So I had kind of a low key evening, but that's just as well. Well, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we, we would like nothing more than to have you anywhere uh, where we're producing out content that's worth your, your time. Um, Thomas, would you like to plug your stuff before we get started on any of these um, uh, on any of these topics that we're going to go into tonight? Sure. I'll show a little bit. Um, you can find me on a few different platforms. I'm pretty active on Twitter. You find, you find me on Twitter at number seven, H-O-M-A-S-777. You can find me on Gab at real, R-E-A-L underscore Thomas777. You can find me on Substack where I, uh, I produce the Mind Phaser podcast as well as dropping long form content on all manner of things. Um, my Substack is realthomas777.substack.com. And uh, I'm also on Tgram. Uh, just do a search for 37mafia, or my personal Tgram channel is just at thomas777. And uh, that's uh, where I can be found. Outstanding, outstanding. And I get the feeling that quite a few of our listeners will already be familiar with you and your work. Um, they'll be familiar with the podcast content we have dropped before. There's quite a bit of it. I'd say almost five to six hours worth. It's a lot of really good content. Um, and, you know, there, there's more content to be found anywhere with, with your name on it. Honestly, anywhere you appear, it's a great time and a great appearance. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on this, like I said, this podcast made in voyage. You know, here at the New World Signals podcast, one of the primary things we are centered around is the concept of America, Americana, and the American mythos. And every time I want to uh, record this show, I want to have a guest on from a different part of the country, and I want to do a particular deep dive into that part of the country, uh, both in a sociological, an economic, a historical, a political, and a uh, metaphysical sense. 
right? And I want to I want to kind of look at all of the different ways that you can understand each locality. And I thought since I was having you on the um uh, the pilot episode, I figured that it, there would be nothing better than to discuss your stomping grounds, your hometown, the place where you spent most of your life, uh, Chicago, which I is a city I have quite a bit of love for, even more love for now that I've uh, read this wonderful book by William Cronin called Nature's Metropolis. I would recommend all listeners who want to learn more about Chicago and find interest in this in the show and what we talk about, go pick up that book by William Cronin, Nature's Metropolis, outstanding book. Well, has it gives you amazing insights on the creation of Chicago and the relationships between metropolises and their hinterlands. So, you know, let's in order to discuss the city of Chicago, I think we should get started with a sort of let's just say a brief chronological overview of kind of just the timeline of, of this city, you know, starting off with the, the 18th and early 19th century um, before, during, and after independence. Uh, Thomas, is it, is it right that the area that became Chicago was largely settled by natives and French fur trappers and, and, you know, outcasts from the, uh, from the Anglo Anglo American colonies? <laughs> Yeah, it was Indian country very much. I mean, not in the sense we talk, you know, we think of Indian country colloquially as, you know, the Southwest, but I mean, quite literally, it was it was a wild hinterland and something like a, a lady I, I know casually, um, she was who's from uh, who's from the West Coast. Uh, you know, she asked me, matter of factly, a couple months back, you know, she's like, why is Northwestern University here in Evanston, you know, on the on on the on the shore like michigan called northwestern i'm like because quite literally that was the northwestern frontier of the united states and beyond that was u.s territory but it was a wild hinterland so um yeah and there it uh it was indian country and it's also too uh it's it's difficult to build things here this is not quite marshland but you know one of the reasons why there's these notoriously bad roads it's not just because of the weather it's because it it uh it's soft soil you know i mean owen the, the great lakes obviously have you know there's the whole ecology around that 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 creates this kind of almost wetland i mean I'm, I'm not i'm not a geologist or an ecologist or an earth science guy so i can't i'm probably i'm probably grossly misstating like you know the the, the, the precise terms for these things but but yeah it uh it's not chicago was not this you know it, it was not it, it, it was not something that just existed in situ or something and yeah that that um, that uh, that that just that just became this you know center of commerce owing to the fact that you know it was, it was uh, there you know owing to the fact that it it was some long running you know, purposefully structured you know uh, territory for the towards that end. I mean that this to your point this was very this was very deliberately undertaken, and yeah it was uh, it was a uh, it was a combination of uh you know, people who couldn't make it as freehold farmers, you know, in, in, in greener pastures, quite literally, you know, trappers, uh, you know, men trying to make their own stakes or fortunes and in some ways, uh, above board in some ways, very, very criminal. And, and yeah, you know, it, uh, it was, it was very much, very much Indian land. I mean, uh, yeah, that's an accurate, uh, that's, that's a very accurate take. Yes, that's true, and I think I think it's been it's been that way as long as there were uh, red men around that area, and yeah. know, the French came in. They really didn't do anything to change the area. They just kind of made their own like little place in that in that sort of balance that the natives had going for them with the fur trade and all of that. Yeah, but it's what's interesting about the French. I don't. Yeah, something you insinuate, and then I'll let you go. Like the French, 
for all their for all their thirst for conquest kind of uh, you know across the planet they 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 made a pretty small footprint man like in a lot of places in the new world you know they they really did like it especially you know in uh especially um in what's now kind of the central united states and yeah they they they, they basically from what i understand and, and i'm not an expert on, on francophone heritage in the Midwest, they yeah they basically came here to make money and and left uh, left the na- the Aboriginal element undisturbed. You know they didn't. It's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and um, um and you know to your point on that, I think I think that's part of the reason why something like Chicago would not exist and did not exist until the um uh, until the early nineteenth century, where you started having this massive rush after independence of all of these. Anglo's leaving the really crowded Atlantic coast and the back country, or at least what used to be called the back country and the foothills of the Blue Ridge and across it, and kind of realized that there was this whole sort of land waiting to be taken. You know, as you said, men coming, trying to make their fortunes. Well, there was a huge rush of everyone trying to make their fortunes in this newly newly claimed, newly found and sparsely settled land other, for, other than red men and French fur trappers. And so... You know, really starting in the early 20th century, you you started having all of these towns, not just in Chicago, but places like Milwaukee, places like Buffalo, New York, Toledo, Ohio, even, you know, what would later become Detroit, Michigan and, you know, Green, Green Bay, Wisconsin, all of the all across the Great Lakes. You had um, uh, you had all of these, you know, towns, these mini port towns taking advantage of almost this like Baltic Sea in the New World. Of, uh, yeah. of sort of trade going on and not just with um, uh, not just with other American ports, but also with like the Canadian ports, like, you know, like you know, Toronto. And I'm not, I'm not as familiar with Canadian geography as I am with, um, uh, with American geography, but I know Canada, a lot of most of Canada's trade is actually with the United States is conducted over the great lakes. And that's always been the case. And yeah, I mean, you know, you almost had like a thousand different cities claiming that, you know, there was going to be this great Western market. And, you know, everyone kind of knew that all of the impetus of the United States was going to shift to the Westward territories. You know, everyone was rushing there to make their fortunes. And everyone knew that with this sort of great expanse of land that was fertile, that was full of, you know, trees, if you go up into the Northwoods, um, that was, uh, you know, that you could grow farms the size of European countries on, they knew there needed to be some huge center of commerce, some great place that would dwarf all other places. And, you know, for the first couple of decades, that wasn't clearly going to be Chicago. You know, Chicago was, you know, very much a place founded. It was, it had very humble beginnings in this sort of marshland, you know, this constant flooding. Uh, They eventually decided that they were going to raise the city a couple of feet and like put a whole bunch of concrete over it um, to figure out. It's fascinating. And that's yeah. something too. Another weird feature of Chicago is, uh, I, I, I don't want to go too far afield. I'll give it back in a moment, but there's what's called community designated areas in Chicago. That's why Chicago hoods all have a name. You know, you got Rogers park, you got Garfield park, you got Humboldt park, you got Ravenswood, you know, you got, um, you got the clearing, like these were all with some exceptions. These are all towns and to themselves that owns that slowly got assimilated into Chicago as, you know, a, like a city in common, but that's, yeah, they, they, they were all just, you know, they were literally like, you know, dozens of towns to your point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the, uh, 
that's something that can't nobody thinks of Chicago as you know like a wetland or a marshland, but yeah, that that's a real that's a real thing. I mean, it uh, to to this day, you know, I mean, I where I'm sitting right now, like on the North Shore, you know, right, around my hometown, like it's literally built on a floodplain, and a lot of Greater Chicago land is like that. But yeah, go uh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, and you have a lot of American cities who kind of have that background as like marshland. Like, you know, that's famously what Washington, D.C. was. That's why so many people call it the swamp because it was built on right. a swamp. And, you know, I think New York to all, all of these sort of great coastal cities. A lot of people don't realize this because all of the infrastructure, but like most great coastal cities have been built on some sort of um, uh, swamp land or delta land because that's, you know, Alexandria is like that, you know, right. Alexandria, Egypt rather. And, you know, that's that's where generally great centers of commerce tend to be because it's right where these, um, uh, these navigable waterways, which are nature's infrastructure, which are the most, yep. and I think to this day, they're the infrastructure that can take the most stress of um, more than railroads, more than roads is uh, it all comes down waterways. to water, man. Like, like yeah. Frank Herbert said, you know, in, in exactly. Dune. Yeah. And, Go ahead. you know, and Chicago, Chicago combines more miles of navigable waterway than the rest of the world combined. <laughs> You know, it's crazy. You've got the Mississippi, not just the Great Lakes, but you've got the Mississippi River, which leads off into the Ohio and the Missouri, and then further down into the into the Red and that um uh, and that river in Louisiana that I can't pronounce because it has fifteen syllables and it's a combination. <laughs> of, it's a combination of French and you know freaking uh, Indian names, and so I, I can't really say yeah. it. Um, but yeah, but even though, like, even though you know Chicago arguably is in the best spot along the Great Lakes to found a city. You know, naturally the Mississippi River stopped like, I think like two miles short of the, uh, of, or at least what's called the Chicago River, that part of the Mississippi River stopped right, two right. miles short of um, uh, Lake Michigan. Uh, and they needed to dig a canal and they even had difficulties digging the canal first off. But like, even then there was no, I think, real reason why Chicago over somewhere like Milwaukee, over somewhere like Toledo, over somewhere where like Buffalo, New York would have been the great center of trading consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. You're yes. absolutely right. And that conclusion did become foregone after um, uh, several factors kind of came in over through the mid 19th century and the civil war, you know, this was kind of set in stone before the civil war, but this was, um, uh, this was also largely prompted by the civil war is that you had this big railroad building boom after the canal building boom in the, um, in the antebellum period. And pretty much the entire railway infrastructure of the, of the Western of, or at least of the Northwestern territories was centered around Chicago Indeed. Um, for, for several reasons, but primarily because, um, you know, cities, cities on the East Coast, cities on the Atlantic Coast that um, uh, that kind of consolidated themselves in the um, uh, in the era of good feelings. Um, like New York City is a good example of this kind of were able to consolidate their assets and the, um, uh, the local wealth there into like financial capitals. New there. New York being the financial capital of the United States was no foregone conclusion. It could have easily been any other city. It's just New York was able to consolidate itself and had the most stuff to consolidate in the first place. True. And, you know, cities like Boston were, you know, already becoming peripheral by the early 19th century. They were becoming less and less important as America's focus shifted from the Atlantic to sort of the, the West, to the Mississippi River and uh, associated 
territory. And also scaled manufacturing. Exactly. Like it wasn't just, I mean, to live, like cities went from being not just trade hubs to being actual worker barracks of massively scaled manufacturing, you know, sight unseen and until the, both the technology and, and the living patterns that would, you know, facilitate sustaining that technology and, and capacity, you know, became a thing. And that, yeah, that we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a very important point about Boston. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, and that's actually largely the reason why Chicago became the center. It did not just because it was this great hub of trade. That's how it started. But this great hub of trade kind of financed this building of um, uh, of this massive industrial center um, with essentially four or five states feeding it. Um, and speaking of feeding, uh, actually, I want to get into the um, uh, I want to get into one of the most important things, not just about Chicago's development, but about the development of the you know United States as a world power, which of all things is the Chicago grain market, right? Yeah, that's the huge. Ch the Chicago grain market, you know. A lot of people they hear when, especially when when anyone. I don't want to get. I'm not an economist. Economics has never been my thing. All right. I know a lot of people in this side of things are, but you know, and I know a lot of people also fall asleep when you start talking about agriculture and stuff. <laughs> unless you're talking about you know the wheat field with the blonde girl in it. That's when they pay attention to agriculture. Yeah, that but, makes uh, it sexy. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, but you know, as they say, all pyramids can't stand without the foundation. And agriculture is the foundation of any civilization, period. And grain was the most largely produced, the cheapest to produce, and the most, you know, the most nutrients per capita source of food for the United States. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I'm sure someone who knows more about agriculture will correct me, but I think to this day, like even more, yeah, so, I wouldn't doubt it. Like, yeah. even more so than things like corn and, and soy, you know, problems that those have. But the reason I talk about the Chicago grain market was because, and this is the thing that a lot of people don't have in their consciousness, but like agriculture was the center of economics pretty much oh, the definitely. entirety of human history up until actually about this development in Chicago. When, um, you know, you had um, a, what, what was initially called the Chicago Board of Exchange um, really started, uh, you know, trading and, and creating these systems of grading different kinds of grain. Right. And it's because they had this massive growing uh, uh, hub of trade with a lot of people, you know, moving there, a lot of farmers taking their crop to this market town, this uh, what they called an emporium that later grew. Right. Because it was the it was the one stop place with all of the infrastructure leading to it that could put it on boats on the Great Lakes and send a boat to, let's say, Buffalo, New York. Right. And from Buffalo, New York, Chicago grain would be distributed to the population centers on the Atlantic coast. Right. Yep. And this was all, you know, extrapolated and sped up by the development of railroad, uh, by the development of, you know, the telegram and instant communication and instant availability of information. Right. And, you know, the reason all of this is important is because as we have already established, agriculture is the center of any country's economy, even to to this day. It is. It's just got five or six levels on top of it, probably even more. But uh, very true. Yeah. Agriculture has always been a risky business, has always been extremely volatile. And that's for several reasons. You know, even anyone who has a basic concept of biology can tell you there's droughts, there's um, um, there's bad years just in general. There's years when you have too much crop and, you know, the price of each individual farmer's crop is is a bit too um, uh, too low. And so that's when they'll that's when things like artificially withholding, you know, um, uh, 
artificially withholding yeah comes into and the, it becomes a cartel structure almost yeah as people try and manipulate outcomes and yeah plus there's also i mean even with uh even with i mentioned clayton yider the other day like in one of our conversations and how mm -hmm. you know post world war ii you know a lot of the uncertainty about you know return on investment as regards commodities was was you know was done away with just because you know f like food tech for better and for worse you know eradicated a lot of uncertainty but even then you know like the demand just the market demand for you know the the products of these these commodities like when they're converted to actual foodstuffs i mean that's a very that's very fickle like a consumer market as i mean oh, yeah. so yeah it's incredibly complicated i just wanted to insinuate that oh yeah exactly and um uh, but the thing is that chicago chicago was the center of um uh, several developments you know number one you've got the grain elevator which made transporting you know bushels of grain from you know train cars into uh into these massive silos feasible it turned it turned these bushels of grain from as as william cronin says in the book from a solid to a liquid and it's a lot easier to move a liquid um in addition on top of that you had all of these um uh, all of these gradings of different qualities of grain right and this came about because farmers would mix good quality grain with bad quality grain in order to sell it as good quality grain and make more right. stocks for themselves and so chicago had bad reputation up until they implemented the Chicago board specifically implemented these grain standards and then they became nationwide adopted. Like the, like, like people have to understand is like everything that has to do with the modern supply of agriculture starts with the Chicago board and their systems of grading. And from those systems of grading and from all of this ability to, um, uh, for this market town to move all of this stuff, another and probably the most important thing um, of all of these, uh, of all of these innovations around agriculture was developed. And that is the futures market, right? Definitely. Now, the United States didn't invent futures. Uh, the Japanese invented futures, but the United States was the first Western country to take futures and essentially force the entire Western world to fall in line with the United States adoption of futures. Right. And financially instrumentalize it. Yeah. And like in, in, a, in a way that had not been done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. To, to shortly, just to shortly explain to any of the listeners who have heard the word futures don't exactly know what it means, specifically what it means in the context of grain, right? Um, a futures contract is a contract that let's say a grower, um, a, like a farmer of, um, uh, of wheat, for example, would make with a purchaser of wheat, a supplier, distributor. And there are tons of middlemen who would come up across the line. But in the most basic concept, it is a contract in which the farmer is selling wheat that they haven't grown yet, right? They're selling, they're essentially buying insurance on next year, next season's crop, right? So this farmer grows its wheat, grows his wheat, right? Um, or at least hypothetically will grow his wheat in the next season. And he sells a contract to this distributor that you will buy my wheat at this price, right? And this is binding. It doesn't matter what the market price is. It doesn't matter what's going on. You will buy my wheat at this price, right? And so that's, that is making wheat into this abstract sort of thing that can be bought and sold. And this turned into people buying and selling contracts. Uh, this is the idea of barren bull markets coming in. People yep. who bet on the, on the they, they tried to make the price of their wheat higher than what they thought the price was going to be. They made it or, or, you know, they were betting on their wheat was going to be, I don't think, I don't know why they would bet on it being lower, but like you had, the whole point was in order is trying to, trying to either meet the market price of the wheat around that time or to beat it. Right. And 
there was lots of money to be made because this whole concept of growing and um, um, and providing agriculture took a burden off the farmer's shoulders because this this made the decisions that farmers had to make easier. It's like, oh, do I sell all of my crop, you know, now or later, or do I um, uh, like, yeah, because you know, there are certain times of year where the market during harvest time gets flooded. And to investors, it became a very attractive hedge. You know, even before there there was you know myriad options to you know to 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 investors, great and small. Yeah, yeah, that's a hugely important point in in economic and finance history. Exactly, and and it was Chicago specifically. It was the city of Chicago as the market center where all of this was developed. And I'm sure there's probably finance people, people with background in the economics world that are like, you know, thinking, oh, this is amateur hour. But this is really important to kind of, you know, outline and discuss in regards to the history of Chicago is that the development of this futures market, basically what its results were is it stabilized agriculture production to the point where the United States took command of the entire world's commodities trade, right? It wasn't, it started with the grain market. That was the most important, but it turned into the lumber market. And then later on into the, uh, into the um, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, it turned into the meat market. You know, Chicago is, is the, is the meat city. It is, it is the center. You know, you see, you saw this in the, um, um, in the wild west, at least after the civil war, all these cowboys driving up these massive herds of cattle from oh, Texas yeah. all the way up to Chicago where they'd sell them and Chicago would butcher them and, and pack them and, and have them ship nationwide. So, well, know, yeah, there's a political, I just wanted to insinuate there's a political dimension here too. I mean, even before the kind of complexity and financialization of, uh, of commodities, you know, really started to have like a structural impact on mark on world markets you know, we in, in, in purely political terms and in, in, and in power political terms, you know, the fact, you know, America having absolutely no need to import food. I mean, that that is huge. OK, I mean, it means you're immune to embargoes. OK, I mean, some oh, yeah. basic way like people neglect, you know, even, you know, powerful and, in, in, you know, what much as powerful as it was militarily and you know, as much as it's, it's, it's human material was was superior. You know, the German Empire, I'm talking about the Kaiser Reich. You know, they, they could be brought to their knees by a literal starvation blockade. You know what I mean? Most states, this was the case. You know, the British Empire was an exception on account of their reach. But that's why you built empires in part, you know, was for that reason. You know, America, America being, um, I mean, this was unheard of. You know, just the, the just nature's bounty that we are sitting on here. I just, that, that we take this for granted. But, you know, that the, the impact on America's fortunes just by that, variable alone cannot be overstated. I just wanted to insinuate that without getting ahead of ourselves. Go no, ahead, my guy. That's completely true. And you know, that's always been one of the um, um one of the the greatest strength of the United States is the fact that I think every year, every year since 1776, the United States has fulfilled completely its food needs domestically. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. We have never had a year where we have needed to import food. We still do import food because in some in some cases, some fucked up cases, it's a lot cheaper to import yeah. shit made elsewhere than it is to actually like take it from from, you know, like three miles away in some cases. But it's like no, a lot indeed, of that actually. Yeah. And, and that sort of scenario actually has come about because of like what happened in Chicago in the mid to late 19th century in the futures market and all of that. Um, and sort of how the entire game was changed worldwide. Um, and really, I want to I want to kind of emphasize all of this. I, I hope this point is getting across to the listeners well enough. But it's like this whole 
thing is is why Chicago is just I don't want to say it's this artificial city, you know, much as an oxymoron that is, but it's like, <laughs> you know, um, or redundant rather than an oxymoron, this this redundant thing of um of of an artificial city, but it's like Chicago was planned and was literally purposely had mumpy had money pumped into it. Um and because of that, because of all of this stuff that we've outlined, all of these innovations that went on, Chicago being this de facto center of the grain trade due to all of the infrastructure. And when the highways came in um, and, and, you know, America shifted from trains to um, uh, from trains to automotive transportation, the highways were built around Chicago, too, as, as were the roads. Oh, yeah. And um, and so and so all of this is why I think Chicago is one of the most important cities in the entire American history, more so than places like St. Louis. Um, you know, more so at least after the early 20th or after the early 19th century, early, definitely after the civil war, more so than places like new Orleans, right? Because it is the, the center of the, um, uh, of commerce in the entire United States and arguably at least commodities wise, the entire Western world, if not the entire world. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, really, a really good friend of mine, uh, who's also from Chicago. He's another Chicago lawyer of like the 15 Chicago lawyers I know. Yeah, no, we're um, deep on the ground here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, um, and he says to me is that everything made east of the Rocky Mountains either passes through Chicago going to market or coming back from market, right? And that was definitely the case before sort of NAFTA and globalization in the 90s, which is the first real break really in the entirety of American history that you see from this sort of arrangement that it existed since places like since the West was settled, where all the commerce was centered around Chicago and the Mississippi River and all that. And I think honestly, you know, not to get too ahead of myself, but I think as globalization proves to be more and more of an unsustainable project, you know, with increased international shipping costs and stress on infrastructure and the like, I think you're going to see a return to this emphasis on these Mississippi River cities, not just Chicago, oh, but, yeah. uh, St. Louis, Memphis, mm -hmm. New Orleans, all these other places, you will see a you will see a almost a revitalization, a rebirth of the uh, inland waterway trade of the United oh, States. Oh yeah, yeah, I think it's already I think it's already starting. Yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, and so, okay, so I think I think that's a good covering of like the the nineteenth century of Chicago. Um, you definitely know more about Chicago in the twentieth century both from the turn of the century when I think the World's Fair, um, when was when was the Chicago World's Fair again? Was that in the 1890s or was that at the turn of the century? There was one, uh, 1896, I think okay. is the Well, that's seminal, close enough. Yeah. That's close enough that you could count it as very much the sort of first harbinger of the 20th century. And I think you did see the 20th century demonstrated in Chicago in 1896. Um, and you would know more about that than me. Yeah, and it's also people neglect, um, or maybe not so much neglect. It, it's it's overshadowed by punctuated events. But you know, I made the point before uh, that um, you know, America really for for about thirty years, um, intermittently after the war between the states, America was really screwed up. You know, there there was a period of about fourteen years, you know, called the Long Depression, which you know was not as in terms of people's individual fortunes and and abject poverty, it wasn't as punctuated and critical as the Great Depression. But you know, America was not in good straits. I mean, part of this was you know the destruction and 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 just death and devastation of the war between the states. But part of it was you know kind of the birth pangs, if you'll excuse, kind of a maybe a not so 
precise metaphor of uh, you know America truly becoming you know an in a, of, of true American like national economics. You know, it really came into its own. You know, uh, you know, true interdependence between the several states. You know, uh, a uh, a a heavy manufacturing based economy um, of, uh, of of value added manufacturers. You know, things like this. Um, but it uh, it really was not until the Wilson administration that that America kind of fully recovered. You know, and that's one of the I I, I don't want to go off topic, but that, that's one of the reasons there was such a money grab around around profiteering off the First World War. I made the point before that I uh, I think it's very foolish when you know when people kind of tire endlessly and and it's very tiresome. You know, invoke Smedley Butler is like oh wars are <laughs> all about banking and bankers. Like that's 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 not true at all. It's not even remotely true, but. There was there was an unusual uh, tendency towards profiteering um, around the First World War, and uh, that's that's part of the reason why. Um, but yeah, and that um, obviously uh, owing to geography, you know, like we talked about, one of the reasons it wasn't just proximity to the you know to the dairy uh, to the to the dairy land um, and everything before before refrigerated container cars existed. You know, you really, you you really had to you had to butcher livestock and you know in in proximity to to its destination because you were racing the clock against spoilage of your of your product. And um, I mean, that's really why the Chicago stockyards were were a thing until the 1960s. And I mean, like we were talking before we went on air, like or before we started recording. I mean, that you know, 1965 was when they shut down. Um, it was right around 60, it was 64, 65, or 66. So I'll have to double check, but it seems like a long time ago, but it's a drop in the bucket in historical time. But yeah, the, the, um, could not just conceptually and, and kind of culturally, but quite literally, you know, geographically, you know, Chicago was, you know, the, the center of the United States and yet yeah, really kind of like the heart and the lungs of its economy, very brass tax terms. And, um, yeah, I think, I don't want to get, we'll, we'll cover this as we go on, but I, I, I think like screwed up as Chicago is, you know, I, I think it will survive owing to some of these things, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't that's unquestionable. I don't, not only do I think it'll survive, I think it'll um, uh, continue to thrive and possibly even have a second golden age just because. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I stay here. Yeah. yeah. Just because of the amount of momentum behind it, you know, everyone, a lot of people have this really naive view of Chicago um, or in all of these big cities. They think, oh, you know, it's this terrible place, you know, urban decay and, and, and all of this other stuff. And like, you know, you've got you know certain ethnic groups of people running around and shooting everything. And, you know, yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah, that's true. Like that wouldn't people wouldn't be talking about that if it wasn't true in some cases. At the same time. Chicago is one of, I don't want to say one of the best run, but Chicago, at least by its own citizens, not necessarily the local government, is one of the best run cities in the entire United States in terms of who knows where to go um, and who knows where to stay out of. You know, the example, I think we've talked about this before, is like during the summer of love back in 2020, um, when um, <laughs> these... Um, when these uh, NGOs bust in a bunch of out-of-towners to try to stir up shit in Chicago, they accidentally didn't know jack shit about Chicago, so they accidentally dropped them off in the uh, in the Hispanic part of Chicago. Yeah, and people started um, throwing shots at them, which was yeah, hilarious. Exactly, exactly. The Hispanics started opening up on these out-of-towners, and that's how you know they're out-of-towners because the people. Well, yeah, that's what's. I'm a big fan of Irvine Welsh. I mean, he's kind of a crazy guy, like a lot of Scottish guys are. In particular, he's like a Scottish Ulsterman, and uh. 
you know, he wrote some of his stuff pretty grim. You know, for those who don't know, he's the guy who wrote Train Spotting, and um, he actually wrote a bunch of books, that, novels that take place kind of within that milieu of, with those same characters. But he's for a time he lived in Chicago, and he gave this interview. I, I it was I think it was the Chicago Reader, which is a shit like commie rag, but um, I, I picked it up that particular issue because they were talking to Irvine Welsh, and he. He said that Chi-Town reminded him of Belfast in some basic way, like going to the, oh, he said that like the racial and ethnic geography is, is very much like sectarian geography. And he said that it's, it's very much a gangster city. And yeah, he said the same thing. He's like, things are, that's like screwed up. But at the same time, he said, you know, if you just like know the parameters of where you should and shouldn't go, like you're basically always going to feel comfortable. And I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Peckerwood guy and kind of a strange person. And I, uh, I, I I very much fit in here. I mean, as more than I do anywhere else in this kind of weird country. But yeah, yeah, that's very true. Go ahead, though. Yeah, and actually, that that's that's actually kind of a good segue. I want to talk about um, um I want to talk about kind of the development of this sectarianism um in the twentieth century because that's when I really think it started to um uh, it started to really develop itself. You know, not just with the uh, the great migration during the world wars of all of these um uh, black folk from the south up to these northern yeah. cities to to fill in industries, but also you've got a massive amount of Catholics coming in, specifically like you know Poles and Lithuanians and Italians. Um, and Croats and all other sorts of, of people coming. Yeah, and there's the Irish country. machine for the longest yes. time. Yeah, yeah. No, and, that's what you know. You know more about that than I do. I want to have. I want to kind of have you riff on that on this sort of on the on the Catholic Catholicification. I don't know how to say it. The Catholicization, no, sure. the Catholicization of Chicago and turning it into the uh, the Catholic capital of the United States because you've got your alma mater. Loyola of Chicago, which is the biggest, I think, Catholic school in the United or biggest Jesuit school in the United States. Um, yeah. And all of these other things. So I want you to riff off on that uh, and, and, and let me know uh, and let it let the listeners know uh, what has to do with that and how that occurred. I mean, it was uh, I mean, mainly had to do with I mean, it was an appealing destination for people. And I mean, I made the point before that immigration today doesn't you, you do not get a great quality of people today, frankly, because, you know, America's kind of America's fortune is kind of stagnated by 1973 in very real terms. Um, I mean, that's a subject for another podcast. But you know, I made the point that in 2022, like generally, if you're like an immigrant from Europe and you show up here to you know drive a you know drive a rideshare in in the in the ghetto, like you're you're probably not a great person, and you probably like are <laughs> you, you know you're probably running from something. But in uh in the at the turn of the 20th century. You know, uh, Europe was really kind of a mess um, in all kinds of ways. You know, and it, uh, it, a lot of these people really didn't have a choice. You know, in terms of trying to, you know, improve their fortunes and, and make a living wage, because in a lot of places um, that just wasn't possible. And um, it's not like you know, working in the in the yards uh, in the slaughterhouses in Chicago or working in a factory. Um, was some great shakes or something, but it, it at least it was you know at least you, at least it was guaranteed work you know and you wouldn't start at this. So I mean that's the Chicago being this huge vector for Catholic immigrants and going back um you know at, uh it, it I mean if and and that's why one of the ways Chicago is incredibly multicultural like in real sense not not in the sense that it's bandied about today for propaganda terms but 
like e. Michael Jones wrote this great book called Slaughter of the Cities, and he, you know, he's talking a lot about East Coast cities like Philly and like Boston, but he focused a lot on Chicago because Chicago really was, you know, um, there there really was neighborhood insularity, and you had a Polish neighborhood, you had a Lithuanian neighborhood, you had an Irish neighborhood, you know, you had the Patch, which was um the outfit heartland, which was very very Italian, you know, you had um these were true parish communities, okay, and uh that uh that's one of the things people need to understand about you know desegregation in the north i mean it was very different thing in the south in the south it was it was it was um you know kind of the second wave of of reconstruction it was a punitive thing as as well as a social engineering uh effort but in the north it was it, it the idea was to smash catholic political power by smashing the parish communities and thus the political machines that these communities you know so, um were sustained by these communities and um, nowhere was that more apparent than in Chicago. You know, I made the point before that, you know, this footage of, like, Martin Luther King and the Freedom Riders, like, people pelting him with stuff, you know, they'll, like, uh, like NPR types, you know, they'll talk about that and they'll show photographs. Like, oh, look at these, like, white racists. It's like, okay, that's, those are places like, you know, there's a place like Melrose Park where in that time it was a bunch of people, a lot of whom didn't even speak English, saying, like, why are these crazy, like, communists showing up here like trying to destroy our parish community you know like they weren't like peckerwood rednecks who like don't like darkies i mean it, that's so it's kind of there's, there's like a very very dis, i mean some people are just really stupid and that's why like that's their take when they you know see these kinds of this kind of footage but this was very very deliberate okay and that um you know jones makes the point that and i, I agree with this point he, he's, he's talking about in the quarters of real political power, okay? He's not talking about street-level stuff, but he's saying, if you want to understand, you know, nationally um, what what the kind of conflict is and the give and take in America, it's, it's more like Bosnia than it is, like, South Africa. It's like Catholic Jews and Protestants, like, rooking each other, sometimes collaborating. One collaborates with the other to, like, attack the other. You know, um, other times they're all at odds. Like, other times there's, like, a blanket consensus this is obviously complicated by the fact that, you know, the like the Vatican very much lost World War II. Like, I'm not saying the Vatican was, you know, part of the Third Reich or were a bunch of national socialists or something. Um, what I'm saying is that they part of the reason World War II was fought was was to smash Catholicism. And, and it was largely effective at that. Like, not I mean, there, there's still very much pious Catholics around. And I, I think that, in fact, they're 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 making I think they're a lot better off now than they were 30 years ago. But I'm talking about you know, as, um, as a formal political structure, like the Catholic church, like does not, their, their power that they could wield was smashed, um, as it was, you know, and they, they had become incredibly powerful by the, by the 1930s and forties. And, um, but that's, yeah, Chicago was really ground zero for that. So that's, um, that's one way, uh, one must understand it. And, uh, that's why the, um, yeah, yeah. It uh that that point can't be overlooked as to why Chicago remains so uh so so kind of geographically segregated. That's a little bit more complicated. And these efforts, yeah, while a lot of these parish communities were destroyed, and then like white flight, um, owing to that destruction and and uh the kind of literal like racial warring that was um I mean, albeit it was not the intensity of of you know something like Ukraine or Bosnia, obviously, but. Uh, things were very, very bad from the 60s to the early 90s in that regard. And like the early 90s were kind of when the last of these 
old like parish communities, save for places like uh, like Bridgeport and and like the Clearing, which incidentally a whole lot of police live in both places. But um, it uh, the um, the uh, it, the 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 regime the the federal regime had to back off a bit, otherwise they truly would have. Otherwise, Chicago truly would have become like a a, a kind of redux of Detroit, and um. It's it, it, like you were talking about earlier, like the significance of Chicago, it's enduring significance as a as a uh, as, as a hub of commodities and trade and, um, you know, the financialization of of these things um, that, that could not really be allowed to happen. You know, they could take the loss of Detroit when a, when America abandoned, you know, national economics based on um, based on uh, on heavy industry. But um, that could not really be allowed to happen to Chicago. And that's kind of where we're at now. It's in a very strange place, obviously, because we've got this we've got this incredibly strange, almost kind of deformed, like psychically and physically character in, in the mayor's office. But that uh, that I mean, that's its own issue that we, we could talk about that on a whole dedicated show as to why 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 there was not a real succession plan after Rahm Emanuel stepped down. I'm not saying I'm not saying Rahm was any great shakes, but um in uh in terms of stability and uh and being able to you know keep and, and in terms of being able to 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 draw capital to the city, like Rahm was actually quite effective. I'm I'm not saying I like him. Anyone who knows me I should not have to say that. But yeah, that's um all well <coughs> all of these things are are uh are relevant, I think, uh, at least um, obliquely to what we're talking about. But yeah, I'm going to give it back to you. Go ahead. No, yeah, of course, yeah, and you know, not just with the um, uh, not just with the the sort of decay and the uh, mismanagement and the active maliciousness coming from the the federal regime over the past sort of 40, 50 years towards the city of Chicago and the entire Rust Belt in general. You know, kind of getting off topic, but my, you know my grandmother, she, she recently passed my grandmother, uh, and her whole family came from like this part of, uh, Ohio, which was, um, uh, you know, back in the glory days of the Rust Belt, it was a steel town, like a lot of places in, in, you know, like Huntington, West Virginia. Um, yeah. And Ohio you know, was a big deal. Ohio. Um, yeah, was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, all and, this. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as the, um, you know, NAFTA was the kind of nail in the coffin, but there had been a sort of long decay. You know, you mentioned Detroit, like, you know, the United Auto Workers really kind of drove Detroit into the ground. Chicago, I'm sure, had its own had its own unions of uh, meat packers and and um, uh, and all other manner of things that kind of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to blame it all on the unions. I'm not saying unions are good or a bad thing, but it's like, you know, you did have this sort of long decline of, you know, as you say, America abandoned national economics. Um, I think that might've been the initiator or there might've always been this sort of, uh, the fact that the Rust Belt came about uh, as, a, uh, as a result of circumstance and inertia rather than any sort of massive advantage to having it there. Um, and, you know, really- Yeah, it was all those seeing- things. It was yeah, you're, only, you're only seeing a sort of initial recovery and some sort of stabilization in the past like 10 or so years. And even that might be brought to a close by what's going on now. But you mentioned something earlier. You mentioned something earlier, particularly with the Catholic boroughs and the uh, the, the, the Catholicization. That's what I'm going to go with. Catholicization of uh, Chicago and not just Chicago, but other cities on the East Coast like Boston, like New York. Like um, uh, you know, New Orleans to a certain extent. You know, you had all of this, yeah, very you true. Know, you had all of this Mediterranean and Catholic immigration, and with that came the concept of uh, you know, 
Cosa Nostra came the concept of this sort of a uh, concept of organized crime. This I, it, which is a very Catholic thing. I found, you know, I'm sure there are some wood historians out there who could say, you know, oh no, Paul, no, the prods had their own version of this, and it was called this, or it was this thing, and I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But like for the most part, in the sort of shape that the uh, that not that the you know the Cosa Nostra and later the Chicago outfit and um, uh, the Irish mafia and all these other places, it kind of took it from that, um, uh, that, you know, almost Sicilian uh, parallel government is basically the best way to describe the mafia. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting I, too. Yeah. No, that, that's, I, I think that, that, that can't be denied. I mean, it, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a variant of a, of white Protestant tribalism, and you see it very much in places like Ulster, but it uh, it, it takes a different form, and like you know, not it is, it yeah, it's very different. And then the way to understand that too is that I make this point to people a lot because people are people got this um they they've got this you know kind of fantasy of the mafia in their mind. Um, you know, uh, like vice laws used to, the way to understand cities is this. Okay, cities by the twentieth. The, ep the epoch we're talking about in particular, you know, the turn of the 20th century and a little bit beyond, you know, what cities, what cities were was they became in, 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 in national economics, what your cities are is they're basically a giant workers barracks, you know, they're a manufacturing hub and they're, 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 they're housing for, you know, the hundreds of thousands of workers, you know, in some, in, in the most highly scaled places like Chicago, the millions of workers, you know, that populate those, those manufacturing facilities and work there, you know, that, that's what cities were. And, you know, that, that it's, it's hard to maintain anything approaching law and order and stability in, in, in social terms, just with that, you know, with that sheer scale of, of humanity. But particularly when you're talking about you know, a younger male, primarily male demographic, you know, uh, it becomes almost impossible. And this is one of the reasons for vice laws, okay? And, I mean, part of it was culture distortion by, you know, uh, populations who, 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 who wanted to insinuate um, a kind of erosion of the, of the moral fabric of America. And, and that, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we don't have vice laws anymore, okay? But I, for our purposes, I don't want, I don't want to get into that. But, um, you know, the reason why, you know, narcotics were illegal, um, the reason why prostitution was illegal, you know, the reason why gambling was illegal and, and, you know, and usurious lending and all these things was, you know, it, this all makes sense when you can, when, when you look at, you know, what the, uh, what, what cities used to function as. Okay. But at the same time, you've got to acknowledge these things are going to exist. So how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that without formally regulating it or condoning it? You know, that's where organized crime comes in. And that's why there's like this hush, hush, wink, wink kind of a, you know, understanding or there was between, you know, organized crime figures and the police. And I mean, I mean, Chicago was uniquely corrupt, but and it is still, but it, it it's, you know, things are different today. But that's that's really the way to understand organized crime. And yeah, like why? I mean, the outfit was different because you then La Cosa Nostra. I mean, you had a core of Italians who really were kind of like the the. The, the control group of it definitely I mean it goes without saying that's but it um you know there were guys who were all prad who were all practical purposes cap what would have been the equivalent of made guys or capos and LCN like who were not remotely Italian here and um that part of that was the demographics part of that was like a different sensibility you know of of things and um 
but that's what uh, the the issue with Chicago is that in a way that even when New York was at its worst and in, in, in pre Giuliani uh kind of wallowing in, in, in the pre Giuliani era. I'm not saying Giuliani was some great executive, but he 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 things changed things changed dramatically under his tenure. But that's why I use him as kind of the pole star of, of a paradigm shift. Um but in Chicago Chicago there was way more it was never really clear in Chicago where like the outfit stopped and, you know, the ruling political combine and, 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 and above board authority actually began. And that's very weird um, for a first world country, frankly. <laughs> I mean, it's, so that's, that's kind of what's remarkable about Chicago, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't want to, I don't want to monopolize with a, well, no, but yeah, Andrew. yeah. To your point, how the outfit was kind of altering um, uh, the Cosa Nostra, um, I think that kind of fits in, in a general theme is that it's like, you know, and I don't know if I brought up this idea before, but, you know, Chicago is the most American of all of the metropolises. Um, yeah. More so more so than New York City, more so than Boston, more so than even D.C., um, which is honestly D.C. D.C. has and always <laughs> D.C. has always been an open air museum. And it's a Masonic playground. Like, you know, you can't I agree with you, yeah. You can't walk five feet without running into some like Masonic symbol in DC. It's 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 hilarious. very weird, man. Yeah. It's very weird. Um, you know, actually I think uh I read one author one time that called it a graveyard, and I think that's a, that's a really <laughs> good a really good description of it. An open air tomb is another yeah, a, a mausoleum or yeah, there's just like weird vibes there. It's not excuse me, it's not it's it's unpleasant. I mean I yeah. When I was out in Baltimore, you know, I, I spent most of my time um, in uh, in Baltimore, in the Baltimore suburbs, or in Harper's Ferry. I went to D.C. a couple times, including on January sixth. But it, uh, <laughs> but it, I, it, it, it's not a place I like to spend a lot of time. You know, it's just not. Yeah, and like, it's, there's it's even even the people like myself who grew up around it want to spend as little time in the place as possible. That's why they, that's, grew, yeah, why that's they the impression in I Northern get. Virginia and Southern Maryland. Anyway. Um, but you know, unlike all of these other cities, you know, new Orleans included, right? Chicago is the most distinctly American. It was built by Americans past independence um, has changed with each of the eras of Americanism and it is, I think it's actually kind of the center of the American consciousness is because like, you know, you know, the Chicago boosters, that's like a whole ideology in and of itself. Like, you know, my buddy, same buddy I talked about earlier, he said, the reason it's called the Windy City is because all of the people who live in Chicago won't shut up about how great Chicago is. But, um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I found this, it's like all the Americans won't shut up about how great America is whenever they're outside yeah. of America. Um, but you know, as you say, going back to the to the outfit as the transformation of La Cosa Nostra, you know, the La Cosa Nostra was an old world institution that was kind of just uprooted and transplanted. Like when it went to Boston and when it went to New York, it really kind of retained the same structure with like the same personnel. But when it went to Chicago, it changed. It became like Americanized. Like you said, there was a core of Italians. But, you know, I'm sure they hired, you know, Irish. I'm sure they had Poles working for them. I'm sure they had Jews running the books. I'm sure they had you know, all sorts of people from all of the various, you know, boroughs. Um, I'm sure they even worked with, with some of the, some of the black folk in, in, in the boroughs of Chicago. Right. Oh yeah, so they did. They did. In, yeah. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound like a progressive when I say, you know, America as this, you know, multicultural place, but it is genuinely this multicultural place, at least, you know, and that's not, that's not to discount the fact that, um, uh, that there is a founding stock of America, right. That, that, 
everything followed from, but it's like in places like Chicago, it's like that founding stock of America likes to utilize other sorts of, um, other sorts of groups to its own ends. And that's why I think the outfit was allowed to exist because the outfit, as you said, performed a service that the, uh, that the local municipal Chicago government, that the state of Illinois, that the federal government could not provide, which was keep order in the young men barracks. And, you know, yeah. that's just, that's just a point I wanted to raise. I mean, I, I don't know what you think of that. I don't know if you think I'm just completely blowing wind um, or if that's a, if that's an accurate portrayal of what the, uh, of what the Chicago outfit was and what they, you know, later became. No, that's a big part of it. And it's, that's what's, yeah, it, it's part of a, like organized 20th century organized crime is one of those things that could only exist in the 20th century. And it's um, what's fascinating to me too, is, you know, the, the, this, the kind of, the kind of paradigm shift moment for American cities was when um, Mayor, it, it must have, I'm thinking it was LaGuardia in any event, New York, uh, when, uh, when New York became truly insolvent, you know, uh, in it was in the Ford administration and LaGuardia or whoever the honcho city honcho was, I'm pretty sure it was LaGuardia. You know, he petitioned Washington, you know, basically to, you know, to bail, to bail out the city, um, you know, until I could get a handle on like, it's, you know, bond rating or whatever. And Ford wouldn't do it. He's just like, you're on your own. Like those days are done. I mean, part of this was cause you know, America was in deep shit. Um, you know, post Vietnam, uh, I mean, stagflation was a real thing. It wasn't, it, 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 in structural terms, like things were very, very, it was critical. It wasn't just like now where inflation's a problem and people are paying too much of the gas pump. Like I'm not, I'm not being flippant about those things. Those are, those are real things and that's hurting people, particularly people with families. But, you know, this was a genuine structural crisis, you know, in the 1970s, but, you know, and that, that American cities began failing because they were coming obsolescent, you know, and, 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 and the national manufacturing economy was kind of like no more. So, what did cities do? You know, they decided the whole, what's euphemistically called gentrification. It's a process which cities are rebranded as lifestyle centers. That's why like, cities are like super pro gay. That's why like they, you know, they, they emphasize these kinds of deviant things because they don't like all cities have going for them is, you know, post, uh, post, uh, post national economics is, you know, Hey, you know, if you're like a, if, if, if you're some, you know, young professional guy, who, you know, who's single and wants to get laid and spend a lot of money and, you know, have like a dope apartment, come here and spend your money. Or if you're like some gay party dude, like come here and like spend your money, you know, or if you're like some kind of striver girl who like watches Sex in the City and that bullshit, like come here and spend your money. Like that's, it sounds like I'm being funny. You're just like putting shade on stuff. But I mean, that that's literally what it is. Okay. I mean, that's, you know you rebrand your cities as lifestyle centers because they're no longer, they're no longer viable as, as to their intended purpose. Um, and that's what, that that's, that's where we're at. You know, you know, it's, uh, and that's why this all, that's why there's all, you know, if you want to talk about like boom and bust and speculation, I mean, that's why, it, that's why it, that's what, that's why it, it remains. It's, I mean, if you want to critique capitalism, that's kind of like your, your best, uh, that that's kind of like your best straw man, okay? Because it's not really a straw man; it's like a real thing. And if you want to talk about um, like urban real estate, you know the reason why there's like, the reason why so many people get makes get so freaking paid, and why so many people lose their shirt with that is because there's not. It's even more speculative than you know you than uh, than it is in other locales because all you're doing is basically it's like okay, can you is the demand for you know to live in this zip code in this urban zip code has been like pumped up enough that you know, people with, uh, you know, people with, uh, 
people people with money to spend or, or or people with like you know adequate lines of unsecured credit to throw at it like want to live here it's like that's literally it you know it's there's not any it's not people aren't people are going there to like build equity unless there's i mean there, there's like genuinely like rich people who are and there's these you know conglomerates you know these like property companies that you know just like buy up like huge swaths of land because they, they're dealing in the billions of dollars but uh but you know what i mean like it's not your average uh like the average consumer you're you know you're selling you're selling them on, on a lifestyle package you know and and trying to you know make your uh make your locale as as attractive as possible to those to those potential tenants that's like literally what it is um and that creates all kinds of weird dynamics but that's and that's changing now like we're because you know cities are failing at that too i mean i mean chicago definitely is you know part of that's lightfoot but i mean lightfoot's more a symptom than she's a cause i mean i uh, I mean, she's a disaster, and and she's bizarre, and she's some kind of like weird like rodent alien or something. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't know, or she's Beetlejuice or something. It, somebody needs to say her name three times and send her back to the ethereal, eldritch <laughs> dimension or something. But uh, I. But that aside, it um, you know, uh, people uh, people are talking at least, and uh, I mean, it doesn't matter if if this is kind of bougie paranoia that that is overstated because perception is reality for what we're talking about the, the way people are discussing urban living now is it's something like it was in the early 90s and the 80s you know they're looking at cities as, as kind of these dirty dangerous places that are you know they're that are grossly mismanaged and you know these dangerous like you know ghetto people are, are like spilling into civilized areas like some of that is happening you know like i go all over right i actually I spend a lot of time in some pretty hood ass areas I mean, for various reasons, and, and and one of those reasons is just because I I, I observe shit because that's part of my job, such that I have a job, you know. <laughs> right? I mean, it's part of how like I make a living is, and just also, you know, I, I think of myself as kind of a documentarian of what's of of the epoch in which I live. But so I'll be, I'll be, um, I, I, goofy as it might sound to some people, because they'll think it sounds like some kind of hippie-ish thing. You know the the sustainable living movement. You know, like people. I mean, to your to your point about agriculture. I mean, I'm talking about the sociological dimension, not not like the scaled economic implications of it. But I like it when I see people in in places like Chicago, like trying to grow their own food in like these common plots where you can like buy like you know like a parcel and like grow your vegetables or whatever. Like I like seeing that, and I want cities to come back in some way, and I think they can. Okay, without. Um, I don't think they'll ever be a dope place to raise a family again, which is unfortunate, but I, I think we can do better. Like, I, I mean, like normal, like right wing, like white people, frankly. And mm -hmm. that's why like, I tell people like, look, don't be like afraid of cities and don't just like throw your hands up, you know, like oh, yeah. it, uh, I, but I, I feel strong about that maybe because I, I'm like a city dweller at heart. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. And, and, you know, you raised a lot of good points on that. And, um, um, you know, not just, not just with the, with the outfit, but this, with the sort of the, the deindustrialization of all of these cities turning from, you know, what was once these centers of trade and commerce, which to some extent they still are like, they kind of went back other than being lifestyle packages to just being centers of commerce where a bunch That's of true, yeah. already was. Um, and you know, a lot of that I think is because of NAFTA and globalization and the outsourcing. But I think, you know, with my predictions, uh, that globalization will be an untenable project. And you, I think you will start to see industries, maybe not returning to cities, but returning to areas around cities where there's lots of infrastructure, but particularly, right. You know, all this deindustrialization, all of this, um, um, 
all of the uh, the Chicago outfit running their operations. Um, and all of this, actually, these golden eras of these cities where they were great places to raise families all happened as minor parts in the backdrop of the larger geopolitical situation of the uh, second half of the 20th century, which was the Cold War. Now, that is true. I think I think Chicago in the Cold War is is one of the centers of the Cold War. I mean, you know, not just in terms of like the American consciousness, like you've told stories before of how you had to get up and say the Pledge of Allegiance every single day in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and um, and, you know, that's you don't know other places that still do that. I had to do that because I live right outside of D.C. and D.C. and Texas are another couple of those places where that always happened. Right. But. You know, Chicago in the context of the Cold War, like, you know, you look at all these 80s movies. How many 80s movies are set in Chicago? There's a lot. Yeah, there's a ton. And everything, yeah, everything from like John Hughes's stuff, you know, like teen movies like Ferris Bueller to, yeah, in the 80s Americana was definitely like greater, it was like Chicago and like Chicago and suburbs, like very much so. And that's, um, that's only to people's orientation, like psychological orientation, this thing, you know, because it literally is like the heartland and it's, it's this massive, like, cityscape and suburban scape and also there's a huge you know i mean chicago obviously was on top of like the both counter force and counter value target list i mean <laughs> you were very aware of that if you lived here and i uh i i grew up right by the naval air base you know glenview naval air base which was a major it was a major basing hub for strategic nuclear forces and other things I the, the one of the first B2s stealth bombers when it was fielded was uh was there and it, it was a big deal to like see the thing um I saw it when I was a kid I mean obviously that didn't that wasn't deployed until like after uh it's 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 intended mission was like obsolescent because you know the wall had come down but uh yeah no this is um there there definitely was a like the cold war like got into your like you kind of like breathe that in entire milieu um and for some reasons psychological some reasons very concrete um uh you know owing to people's patterns of living and things and and what what remained of of national economics you know it's it manufacturing at scale i mean as well as you know a very heavy a very heavy military presence in the in the greater metropolitan area yeah that can't be they can't be denied. Um, this guy, I can't remember his name now. Um, he's one of these guys who he, he's somewhat pompous, like a lot of these artsy critic types are, but he makes some good points and he's not particularly left wing. I mean, it's relative, but he, he wrote a whole series of essays years back about how different epochs, like what part of the country they emphasize, you know, like in the, you know, whether, whether, whether they consider Americana to be like the Southland or whether it's, you know, like in the 50s and 60s, stuff was always set, you know, in like Los Angeles, suburbia, you know, and then, but yeah, you're very, indeed, the final phase of the Cold War, you know, 1980s, like, would, like Americana, like through the lens of, of, uh, of film land was, was definitely, uh, like greater Chicago land. And that's, that's, that's highly significant. And yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, that's why I tried to emphasize the people too, like even today. You know, people like they they see like they see like the 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 creepy gremlin Lightfoot on TV, or they see like these crazy gay guys, you know, and doing their summer parade, or they see like BLM going berserk, or they see like hood shit on the news. Like they don't realize you talk to like normal people on the street in Chicago, like you know, white white folks or or Hispanics too, and even just kind of like run the middle like black dudes. I'm talking like like black dudes who work for a living, not like hood dudes. Okay, 
I mean, these are people are not like a bunch of like left wing Berkeley liberals or people who are like, yeah, we love, you know, the pride parade or we love, you know, freaking BLM. Like that's not like <laughs> the way people think. I mean, they're definitely like compared to me, like they don't like see eye to eye with me other than, you know, an enlightened minority <laughs> in my opinion. But, you know, it's not people uh, for Chicago's. Yeah. Boston is kind of like this, too. Um, I, I spent some time out there. So I, I I'm not just speculating. But, uh, you know, Chicago is one of the few kind of urban environments where, yeah, you people people like identify with America in some like patriotic sense. I mean, that's good and that's bad, you know, but it, it's the it's against the grain in terms of like what you think of for, you know, like big city life in this country. I mean, now is same as, you know, 30 years, 40 years ago. Yeah, that's definitely correct. Yeah, and I don't think that's by accident. I don't think the the impetus of the American consciousness being on Chicago is by accident. I don't even think that's that has to do with economics or anything like that. You know, like we said earlier, Chicago is the American city. Um, there yeah. was no one who built it, um, you know, except for like, I mean, much as you could say the Catholics built it, I think they they put stuff on top of it. But you no, know, it was the Americans that summoned it from the um, uh, that old Indian country from those marshes that dug yeah. the canal that connected the Chicago to the great lakes that built all the railroads around it, that built the highways around it, that centered all of those markets around it. Right. That, 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 you know, had, um, uh, that had all of that military infrastructure around it, that had all that media consciousness around all of that. That's not an accident. That is all I think a result of the fact that the American consciousness and the American soul and the American spirit are all real conscious living things that have wills of their own. And in many ways, what we think we create, what we think we artifice and we bring out from the earth and we think that is in our control is in reality only coming about because these things, the American soul is a part of the wider Western soul, Western soul rather, wants it to be the case. And that's why I have such a deep love and a deep fascination and a growing fascination with the city of Chicago, because it seems to be almost one of these holy sites in the American consciousness. And I, I look I look forward to actually making a pilgrimage up to Chicago very soon where I'll see you and several other of my friends and get a feel for this city and probably maybe even write like a short story or, a, or an article or a poem on it. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you very much, and yeah, that'll be dope, man. You'll have you'll 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 enjoy your time here, man. I mean, I like I said, it's it's not just my own bias in favor of my home territory. It uh, like everybody, everybody who comes here. I mean, even if they're not particularly comfortable in big cities, they 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 always they always relay to me that you know they they were glad they visited. You know, it's it's a fascinating place, man. And one of the things I like about it, like I was uh. You know, like I, I, whatever you're into in Chicago, like you can find that. You know, like even a dude like me who seems like he'd be totally out of place. It's not just because I'm local here. Like, there's guys and girls who like see eye to eye with me on like politics and values, and like we hang out. You know, and like I, I, I sought these people out, yeah, and they sought me out online. But you know, whatever you're into, like you can find it here, like for good and bad. And most cities are not like that. There's not just like some monoculture, but in most cities there are, there, there, there is, man, like adjusting for ethnicity and race. It's like, everybody's into the same shit or like everywhere you go, it's like, just like the same kind of things. And, you know, but Chicago really isn't like that. I mean, yeah, you got to like dig around and it's not above board, but that it's not supposed to be, 
you know it uh so this yeah that's i <laughs> i will defend this place until the day i die <laughs> um you know and like i said if, if this was just like this horrible place with nothing going for it i i'd leave man you know it's like yeah everyone's attached to their home but I, i'm not like an idiot and i'm not you know like a masochist you know it's like i i go somewhere else man you know it's i'm pretty well traveled but yeah yeah i agree very much yeah, definitely. And, um, um, you know, before we close out, I, I want to ask you, um, uh, what do you think the future holds for Chicago and, and greater Chicagoland? Right. I want to I want to hear what you think, how you think that the changing forces of of not just America and American politics and American consciousness, but the world. You know, I've already kind of outlined what I think. I think Chicago is going to have possibly a second golden age or a sort of rebirth or a silver age or something like that. And that the impetus of the global economy or at least the de-global economy will shift back to Chicago. But I want to hear your take. I want to hear what you think the future holds for, for Chi-Town. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, these things go in cycles. And I mean, yeah, it's like the current regime is particularly bad, but I, I maintain on the ground, things are not as bad as they were in the 1980s here. Okay. And also, yeah, I, I think, I think globalism is being exposed already, man. That's what like China's fa I mean, China really is failing. Okay. Like in, in economic terms, not only is it not this, not only is it not becoming this, you know, utopian superpower, it's, it's really demonstrating. It's not even, it's not even, uh, you know, it's, it's not even really that competitive, man. Like it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, and it's, you know, and, and the only draw they really had was, you know, the fact that it was, uh, it was it was cheap to do business there and that's not even really the case anymore so you know i think a lot of these kind of fictions about um these kind of triumphalist fictions uh are are, are, are being truly exposed and you know so yeah you're gonna see you're gonna see a return to it you're not gonna see a return to heavy manufacturing and national economics but you are gonna see like a return to to uh to truly productive activity um stateside just like by necessity okay i mean some of this is going to be political like some of this is going to be um like a purely uh a, a purely market-based decision like going to one of the realities of of you know the what what's an unsustainable outlay or outlays but so i mean i think that you're going to have yeah places like chicago are, are going to become vectors for direct investment if they have the right you know management and currently we don't um Chicago is hemorrhaging people, but I mean, all cities are, okay? Um, I mean, all big cities are, okay? I think the future generally is places, uh, is places, uh, places like Austin, Texas, places like Gilbert, Arizona. But, you know, to your point about ecology too, you know, it, uh, being on the, being on the shore of literally, you know, like the largest, you know, like freshwater body, like on the planet, you know, I mean, that, that means things will always be viable here, particularly as, you know, I'm not some environmentalist, but at all, but, uh, you know, there, there, there is a limited carrying capacity to, to, uh, to ecology, um, localized ecology. And, uh, I mean, Chicago land remains desirable for the reasons we talked about, like first among them, you know, this kind of inexhaustible supply of like fresh water, um, fresh potable water. So it'll be, It'll be interesting to see, but yeah, I'm, I'm basically optimistic, man. You know, uh, n not in absolute terms, but I, I mean, in relative terms. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's going to come down to the ability for Chicago to garner direct investment. And right now it's really, really failing at that, but it does have a lot of things going for it. So that, 
that, that that'll turn around. I, I do not see Chicago becoming just another like a, a glorified Detroit or becoming some like horrible like Mad Max wasteland. I mean, yeah, there are aspects of that here, but thankfully they're pretty self-contained. I mean, it, you know, I I've seen the city. I'm, I mean, I'm old enough that I've got some bases for comparison, and I've I've seen in my lifetime I've seen the city a lot worse than it is now. Okay, um, so I mean, take that for what it's worth. That's that's my that's my kind of in a nutshell take. All right, outstanding. Well, Thomas, I would like to once again thank you very much for joining me on this uh, on the pilot episode of the New World Signals podcast. Um, I hope that you come back many, many, many times in the future, um, not just to talk about you know Chicago. Maybe we'll talk about Chicago again, some other aspect of it, or maybe we'll talk about some other aspect of Americana that you're very familiar with. The door is always open for you at my Orange County estate and on this podcast. So. Thomas, I want to thank you very much for coming. And I want to thank all of the listeners for listening to this show. Um, there will be two episodes every month. Uh, it will be bi-weekly every other week. And I will have a variety of different guests on, not just Thomas. I have several friends who are more than willing to come on and talk about their own aspects of Americana. So once again, thank you very much, Thomas. No, thank you, man. Pleasure's all mine. I mean that. It's uh, This is really great. No way I'd rather uh, spend my evening hours. Yes, sir. All right. Well, and with that, we bring this first episode to an end. May God guide everyone listening and may they find foreign shores less appealing than their own. 